Repeal and replace didn't even come up for a vote in the Senate. So now what happens? And what do you need to know to advise your clients? We'll find out on this episode of Shift Shapers. Change either paralyzes or energizes. The choice is yours. You're listening to the Shift Shapers podcast. You're about to learn firsthand from businesses and entrepreneurs who have successfully shaped the shifts in their industries. Get ready to become the change that you want to see. Here's your host and chief transformation strategist, David Saltzman. This episode of the Shift Shapers podcast is brought to you by Captivated Health, a captive insurance arrangement that helps small and mid-market companies escape the fully insured marketplace and delivers stability, control, and savings without watering down employees' benefits or increasing their premium share. If you have clients in the educational institution or the engineering vertical, go to our website at CaptivatedHealth.com or click on the company logo on the Shift Shapers website. It is time for our quarterly visit with Jessica Waltman. Jessica, as listeners know, is the principal at Forward Health Consulting, but she's also our resident expert on all things legislative, political, and regulatory. By way of setting the stage, we are recording this on Tuesday, July 18th, 2017. Now, we never do that, but it's important, especially today, because this morning, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell pronounced health care reform dead in the Senate. So we've got loads to talk to Jessica about, but first let's say welcome. Hi, David. It's great to be back on the podcast. Always great to have you share your wisdom with us. So we can get into the the legislative stuff before, but let's level set and talk about the predicate. What is the actual state of PPACA in whatever markets you know you want to talk about? Well, you know, I think that most of your listeners understand this very well, but perhaps their clients don't, you know, their mother might not. They're their neighbor that's asking them about it. The ACA is a thousand page law. It has about 40,000 pages of related regulations. It has huge sections related to Medicare, Medicaid, the employer market, other programs. But it, what they're talking about when they talk about the ACA in a state of collapse on television is, of course, the individual market, which covers about 7% of the uh, U.S. population. And so the individual market in a number of states obviously is suffering from a lack of competition, particularly on the exchanges, because there's also a difference between the individual market generally and individual market insurers that want to participate in the exchanges. And so when they say Obamacare is failing or the ACA is failing, I think what they're really referring to is the individual market. And it's, I think, very important to keep making that distinction because agents and brokers that may be listening to this or other people in the industry, you may be working with employers, employees that are hearing every health insurer is leaving our market. And that's probably not really true for them. So with that said, the question is, what the heck just happened? (laughs) Well, so the House and the Senate made a choice a while ago, that they would not try and work with any Democrats at all. And they would try and create this repeal and replace legislation using the constraints of the budget reconciliation, which really limited what they could actually tackle. And so as we've talked about before, the legislation that the House passed and the Senate considered 
really did not address most aspects of the ACA. And it really only did things that had to do with dollars and cents. So for example, the employer market, the, you know, I would say it repealed the employer mandate. It didn't. It just zeroed out the penalty. So it was a very constrained piece of legislation. And since it was a setup for a comprehensive tax reform, they decided to include a whole big component of it that really had nothing to do with the ACA. It was a reformat of Medicaid spending in the future. And so we had a very limited bill that did not fully repeal the ACA and made massive changes to Medicaid. And it really exposed a big divide in the Republican caucus. No one really liked it. It wasn't doing what they had promised to do for the past seven years. And it really never could. And so it's not really surprising that it blew up in their faces. But so now we are where we are. We have a House passed legislation. They kind of went out on a limb there. And we have the Senate unable to bring a reconciliation bill that addresses the ACA even to the floor, even to consider it. And they did not have the votes that they needed to bring it, you know, after trying two times to revise the legislation. And then today, Senator McConnell said, well, we're going to bring a clean repeal bill to the floor. We're going to just repeal the ACA flat out and give ourselves two years to come up with a replacement because we cannot come up with replacement language now. And they weren't talking about just making tweaks to it like the original bill did. They were talking about repealing the entire thing. And as of when we're recording, at least three senators have said that they will not play a game of chicken over the next two years and try and craft a new replacement bill. So they will not allow Senator McConnell to even bring that measure to the floor of the Senate. So right now they're at a stalemate. They cannot bring anything up and they're going to have to regroup. Was that kind of in part a way to build a firewall for the midterms? Yeah, probably. I mean, he needs to get people on the record. And then also, you know, obviously there's a huge amount of public backlash. Like this situation has made the ACA more popular than ever. Because one of the interesting things that I think the Republicans did was they really didn't communicate why they were doing this or any of the advantages or where any of the problems lie. So any of the, you know, good improvements that were in their bill, you know, some of the changes to HSAs or, um, you know, just for an example, you know, the ACA raised the limit on the increase in tax on the amount a person can deduct from their individual taxes if they have catastrophic medical expenses. So it used to be 7.5% of the AGI and they, you know, the ACA raised it up to 10%. This was going to put it back to 7.5%. Now I have a child with a catastrophic medical condition. So we have really high medical expenses. So for me, this was like really good news. And I really saw that 2.5 tax percent tax increase as a tax against people that have you know children or families with super high cost medical expenses instead of making a big deal and saying hey the ACA raised taxes on all of these poor families with really ill children and we're going to roll it back the republicans said nothing like they didn't make any big deal about that at all there was lots of provisions in both versions of the bill that could have helped people They didn't do any PR campaign about any of those at all. And so now they're really stuck. 
so they've got, they have to, you know, they've got the ACA super popular and they have to answer to their constituents that really do not understand why in the world they were considering this to begin with. But they also have to answer to some of the mega donors in the Republican Party. So a lot of people know of the Koch brothers, but there are lots of other people like the Koch brothers, but less famous that contribute millions and millions of dollars to super PACs that help Republicans up and down the ballot in the states. And they all pretty much came together about two weeks ago at a meeting and said, we're not going to give you any more money if you do not do a full repeal. And so by holding this vote where he tries to flat out repeal the ACA and then do the two-year delay, Mitch McConnell does a bunch of things. He, you know, lets people go on record saying that they do oppose that if they're in a district where that would help them. It lets him say to the mega donors, I held a vote. I couldn't get it done. It's not my fault. You can blame the Democrats or, you know, these moderate Republicans or whoever you want. And it also lets him kind of gives him a stopping point so that he can move on to other things because we have to raise the debt ceiling They would like to do comprehensive tax reform. They have to do the appropriations bills. They have a very short legislative timeline left. So he needs, he needs to kind of move on to something else. But you've been, you've been around the Hill a lot and, and you know an awful lot of what goes on there, both the part the public sees and the stuff behind the scenes. They did a clean repeal back in 2015. And obviously, as you just said, they've already lost three votes, but a lot of the folks who voted for that in 2015, knowing full well that it was going to be vetoed, if it got to the president's desk, aren't going to vote for it now. Is it a lack of political courage? Is it politics? Is it policy? What's the driving factor there? Well, I mean, there's a couple of things. First of all, um, several of the people, you know, Susan Collins did not vote for that in 2015. I think Lisa Murkowski did. So the three people so far that have said that they won't vote for this are Shelley Moore Capito, Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins. Susan Collins didn't vote for it in 2015. Shelley Moore Capito was not in the Senate then, so she doesn't have a record. Lisa Murkowski maybe has flip-flop, but she doesn't really have to worry. She is in a very safe seat in Alaska. And Alaska stood to lose a lot. One of the differences that I think other people that may come stand behind them and people like Bob Corker, Tom Cotton, that were concerned about this idea was this isn't a straight repeal. This would be a repeal with a two-year delay, so there would be no replacement right away. When they voted in 2015, they voted to replace it with a bill that had been largely authored by now HHS Secretary Tom Price. Was that a great replacement? you know, who's to say, but they had something to go right away. This would be repeal with a big question mark. And so that would put not just the individual market, which is already in trouble and peril, it would also put employer markets, you know, people in Medicaid, people in CHIP, Medicare. I mean, the ACA is a thousand page law. It made all kinds of changes to Medicare programs, other you know, things that really are not problematic right now. To have that all turn back possibly in two years would really send providers, insurers, employers, insured individuals into chaos. And so I think that their excuse is going to be, or you know, their 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 rationale is going to be that we cannot just go for two years and have an unknown. The market 
it would just be too destabilizing. And now, a word from our sponsor. Captivated Health is a single-source solution for your clients and prospects in the education and engineering verticals. The founders of Captivated Health have 35 years' experience working with healthcare and benefit clients. And over that time, they've developed a keen understanding of the unique problems mid-market clients experience. Frustrated by a lack of control, the unpredictability of ever-increasing healthcare costs, and the pressures and regulations of the Affordable Care Act, these groups have been adrift in the fully insured commercial marketplace. Until now. Captivated Health has built a program that solves those problems and does so with virtually no disruption to employees while saving clients millions of dollars. We wanted you to be among the first to know that Captivated Health is building a national distribution partner network so you can bring this cutting-edge solution to your education and engineering clients that you advise. To learn more about Captivated Health's solution, go to our website at www.captivatedhealth.com or click on our logo on the Shift Shapers website. But in the meantime, they need to reauthorize CHIP. What's going on with that? So the CHIP program needs to be reauthorized by uh, September 30th. And they talked about just cleanly reauthorizing it, which is what they've done the last few times that they needed to do that. So just kind of, you know, extending the same amount of money. But it is a healthcare bill that needs to go through the related committees. And so it is possible you know, going back to what we talked about in the very beginning of this podcast, what is really in trouble here? It's the individual market and particularly the exchange individual market. So Senator Lamar Alexander, who chairs the Health, Education, Labor and Pensions Committee in the Senate, has a bill that he introduced this spring, kind of a fallback measure that would allow individuals who live in a state where they're are no carriers in the individual market exchange, uh, the ability to use their tax credit money off exchange, and it would have provisions for those who only have one or two carriers available. He said today that as soon as Senator McConnell holds this vote to proceed on a motion to repeal and delay for two years, and that fails, which they would like to do very quickly, his immediate plan is to hold a hearing and start regular order on some individual market fixes. So my guess is that they may use the CHIP reauthorization or another moving vehicle in the short term to make some immediate market fixes. They may also address the issue of the subsidies, the cost-sharing subsidies, and whether or not they'll be funded for the next year or two to give some certainty to the markets. Um, and they may be able to tack something else on. So the chip reauthorization really, you know, it could go through cleanly and they could do all this attached to another measure, but it's kind of a logical vehicle that they have to vote on pretty soon where they could, you know, at least slap some band-aids on this. Against all of this background of stuff that's going on in Congress, HHS Secretary Dr. Tom Price has made a request for information. What do you know about that? What's come in? What kinds of things are you hearing? And what do you think might happen with any of that stuff? Right. So when they started talking about this repeal, replace, repair earlier this year, they talked about doing it in three phases, the reconciliation, then a bunch of regulatory fixes, and then some market reforms to come later. So phase one, the reconciliation fail. 
Now it looks like they're going to move on to phase two, which they always wanted to do anyway, but now becomes even more imperative. So Secretary Price issued a request for information from, you know, really anyone in the middle of June. And there was 30 days to provide comments. So the comments were due last Wednesday. And what he asked for was for you know, insurers, agents and brokers, employers, hospitals, you know, anybody that had an interest to provide information for him to kind of hit on four key issues. How could he improve enrollment and getting consumer information out to people, particularly in the individual and small group market? How could he improve affordability, particularly in the individual and small group markets, but really anywhere? What could he do to reform markets and what adjustments could he make that way relative to ACA rules and other rules that might be hurting the marketplace? And then also, what could he do to give additional power back to the states who you know, have always traditionally been the prime regulator of the business of insurance? And this is really to kind of carry out the president's executive order that he signed on the first day in office trying to ease the regulatory burden on individuals and employer purchasers of health insurance. So he got a wide range of responses and I can probably give you the link. We could link to it in your show notes, but they have, you can read them. They're publicly available on regulations.gov if you are a weirdo like me and you like to read those types of things. But you could see what groups like the Chamber of Commerce and um, you know the American Cancer Society and NEHU and other groups recommended. But I can tell you that there is a wide range of recommendations of things that they could do via regulation to make things easier or smoother. And for those in the industry listening in this podcast, this is the stuff where nuts and bolts, things might change that could either impact costs slightly or impact compliance requirements slightly and make things possibly easier and more efficient in the years to come. So we've got, I guess, four minutes or, or so, maybe a little bit longer left. And so let me throw out the bomb that people are starting to talk about. And you, you hear this in industry meetings um, nobody really says it out loud, but at, you know, if you got a cocktail in your hand, the the discussion is: is single payer inevitable? What's your take on that? Well, I have to say, one of the most disappointing things about everything that's gone on over the last you know seven eight months or so to me is what I mentioned before about the Republicans kind of conceding a lot of points and not really communicating and explaining themselves. I am very concerned about the haste and disorganization in which they rolled out their efforts and really didn't sell things to the American people correctly. They exceeded a lot of ground. So, for example, the whole concept of high-risk pools, I think that they really sold that very badly. Or age rating, where, you know, even states like California before said when the health reform age rules of three to one were implemented, this is too much, too fast. You had the very liberal elected Democrat insurance commissioner of California saying, whoa back, these age ban rules are causing premiums to rise too steeply in my state. And when they put them into the Better Care Reconciliation Act and the American Health Care Act of returning, you know, returning age bans to just five to one versus three to one 
you know, many states, they were 11 to 1 before the ACA. With no explanation, now it's an age tax. High-risk pools, which, you know, some states they functioned well, some states they didn't. I would be happy to go into a super nerdy discussion about them, you know, that no one would want to listen to, so we won't do that. But, you know, they weren't the devil that they were made out to be on TV. Unfortunately, a lot of ground was seeded. And so I am very concerned that a lot of people that maybe would have been you know, more agreeable to some of these changes now can't do that. Or there's going to be a lot of PR work that needs to be done. I don't think single payer is inevitable, but I do think this whole effort was very damaging to those that support sort of a more free market return to health reform. And maybe we do need a little bit of a cooling off period and then hopefully, you know, start with some small changes to the individual market and work from there. But the individual market does need to start functioning a lot better. Or I, I am afraid that people that, that, you know, don't want to get super nerdy about health reform are just going to think that single payer is inevitable. But I mean, it, it, it's, a, you know, that in and of itself would be a whole huge debate. We would need a complete power shift in Washington, which of course could come in the next two to four years, but, you know, it's not a certainty. And, um, you know, it's, it's very, very expensive. You know, states that have tried it independently have all been a, unable to come up with the financing. So I don't know that it's inevitable, but I am really disappointed. I think there's a lot of PR work that needs to be done. And it's, it's not just PR. It's, it's explaining that there's a method behind this madness that some of these policies are not intended to be cruel to people. They're just trying to manage risk. You are trying to be more transparent about costs. You know, Medicaid may need reforms to be sustainable moving forward. There's going to be a lot of explaining that needs to be done that unfortunately was not done over the last few months. Yeah, I, I will tell you as a communications guy, I spend a lot of time screaming at the television said it's a good thing that I have thick walls and no neighbors who are really close to me because it is frustrating to watch the amazing inability to message and to to be upfront with these issues. But that gives us a lot to talk about on our next quarterly visit. So I, with that, I'll say, Jessica, thank you very much. Jessica Waltman, Principal at Forward Health Consulting. We always love speaking with you and we learn so much. So thanks for sharing your expertise. Thanks. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. The Shift Shapers podcast is a production of Strategic Vision Publishing and David Saltzman. This podcast may not be reproduced in any form, in whole or in part, without the express written permission of the producers. All rights reserved.